Hello and welcome to One Inch Past Scary Podcast. It is January 2020 and I'm finally back after a long hiatus. I am Kirsty Sayer and I last spoke to you back in October of 2019. I apologize for the long absence. Um, it is what it is though and we're moving forward. Um, I did run that marathon that I left you on the cliffhanger. was preparing for that marathon and I ran it, completed it, um, successfully and uh, today I want to tell you some anecdotes surrounding that experience to back up my claim in the title of this podcast that achieving your goals will not make you happy. Now I know that we are in the beginning of a new year and a new decade and the collective consciousness is really in tune with leveling up, achieving goals making yourself better, going for it, new year, new decade, new you, all of those, those things. And I, sorry, my water bottle is um, talking back to us at this moment. Um, and I'm all for goals. I love goals and I feel very, very strongly that it is so important to live a conscious and intentional life. And that really necessitates um, taking stock of where you are on a really regular basis and looking at where you want to be and seeing where your habits are either assisting you or derailing you. And so I'm all about the goals. I love the goals. I'm a goal setter myself. I have several for this year. I have several for this day. This podcast is one of the things I have a goal to complete today. Um, However... If you are counting on achieving that big elusive goal, whatever it is, whatever it is, I'm here to tell you that achieving it will not make you happy if you don't have some other things very firmly in place. And those things um, I'm going to talk to you about today. And I want to tell you about, um, so I'll tell you a little bit about the marathon and what it triggered in me and how I learned um, about more about those things and then I want to offer you a toolbox something of a toolbox for dealing with those things because I think that this is a very prevalent issue whether you have um, complex PTSD as I do or PTSD at all or you know somebody or helping people through that or raising children we all have um, issues where we undermine ourselves at some point in our lives maybe you're at a really really healthy and solid place right now And those don't crop up for you very often, but they're very good to be aware of if you are in um, the business, as we all should be, in assisting others through this um, experience of life, which is a a daunting one. It's a, um, it can be really um, overwhelming if we, if we are going at it with the, the toolbox that we might have assembled as kids. And um, many of us, are. Many of us assembled a, 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 some, some super coping mechanism, mechanisms for dealing with childhood, particularly if it was a childhood that involved tra- trauma, abuse, um, neglect, abandonment, or any of those things. Even if you had uh, some solid parenting, you might have experienced some um, trauma from peers, from, um, you know, in, in the form of bullying or uh, teachers or coaches or what have you um you know we've all got stuff in our past that has really kind of informed maybe our concept of um ourselves and our coping mechanisms and and we did and you know children are so so um clever they really are they they're very they're copers they're very resilient um and 
they they assemble sort of these coping mechanisms to to get through stuff, um, which really uh, they mirror a lot of what they hear, and that keeps them safely enough under the radar um, to be protected. But they don't work. They don't work well at all when you're in adulthood. And so I've talked a lot about getting the inner child out of the driver's seat because a driver's seat is no place for a child to be. You're right on a on the road trip of life. A child needs to be safely strapped in with a five point harness in the back seat. But today I'm going to talk even more about um, something that we don't actually have to have at all in our lives. We don't have to have a harsh inner critic. We don't have to have um, an undermining figure with unkindness who speaks to us with unkindness and intrudes on our accomplishments and on our dreams and our desires to make more of ourselves and to to expand into our um, our potential, which is our guard or if you don't like the word guard, um, just our birthright. Um, it is a it is what gives us joy and and expanding you know always moving towards your potential and having a concept of this divine potential and of this very very powerful potential is what gives us joy and confidence and purpose in life and so today i want to talk about how my inner critic got super super um out of control and was not happy with the fact that I'd finally taken on a goal that I had successfully um, sort of uh, like told myself was not for me, that I was not worthy of. And so at the beginning of um, the spring or the summer, I decided to run a marathon. And this would not seem to be a very big deal. It would seem to make a lot of sense to a person um, for a person who's been running since they were 17 and who's now, you know, I was 42 and I keep losing track of my age. I think that's a sign that you're super old, but <laughs> no, not really. Um, 42 or 43. I think I'm 43 now. I've never been good with numbers and now that's, that's on my side because now I'm making myself younger than I am. Anyway, um, look at me, look at me using all this undermining language still naturally. I've been doing it since I was a kid and I'm still doing it today, even while I'm conscious of it. So, so let's, let's keep track of that. And, and I'm going to try not to do it so much anymore. Um, anyway, at the beginning of spring, I was like, I, I, I think this is now the time for me to, to run a marathon. And you might go, yeah, like, obviously you're, you've been running since you're 17. You're now in your early forties. And it seems like, uh, you should have almost, if you've run all those half marathons, isn't that the next logical step? Like if that's something that's interesting to you, go for it, right? That seems natural. Well, yeah, it did. It did. It seemed natural for other people. It was okay for others. Others get to do stuff like that. But for some reason, I decided I didn't. I was in some way um, not worthy of it. And I got rid of all that nonsense. Um, for some reason, something had clicked that I thought, you know, this is an interesting goal for me. Um and it seems perfectly within my capabilities. Other people can do it, so can I. Um, and I'm going to because I'm healthy and I'm a regular runner and um, I have perfectly um, suitable, manageable expectations of myself. And so that's what I'm going to do. And so throughout the summer, I really, really... Um, enjoyed the process of it. It wasn't nearly as arduous as I'd been led to believe or had made myself um, build up in my mind. 
Um, I'd, I've run for a long enough time. I've run for a long enough distance that it wasn't such a big, hairy deal. And I was re- really enjoying it because what I was doing um, was just focusing on the process and, and enjoying the moment, just enjoying going out there and being on long runs. I wasn't timing myself obsessively. I was just listening to my body and taking um, short little walking breaks um, when I needed to so that I wasn't getting injured and everything was going brilliantly actually um, because I was listening to podcasts and other um, things on YouTube um, that were helping me to form um, or to come back to my spirituality, which was always really important to me. I'm very much an inherently spiritual person. And when I walked away from my religion, it was hard. I was kind of in a free fall because that going to say atheism or even um, being agnostic, which I suppose I still technically am, um, it was with not allowing myself to, to see meaning in my own life or in things that happened to me was was a very weird and difficult adjustment. And it felt like denying myself because I've always been spiritual and I've always looked for symbolism in things. And I've always found a lot of comfort and guidance and affirmation in that. And it's just, so coming back to my inherent spirituality felt good. And in a way, um, on my own terms, that made a lot of sense and f- and resonated with my soul felt great. And so I was in a really good place. I also started to um, meditate daily. I was really disciplined about that. And I found that it had made a great, great difference in my sense of well-being. And I was feeling uh, physically, mentally, spiritually stronger every day. So that was wonderful. Um, then right before um, I was to run the marathon, I think the inner critic, um, for some reason it was awoken. I'm not entirely sure to this day why, but the fact remains is that it was. And it had something to do with um, me becoming injured. I'm not entirely sure that it wouldn't have anyway. It wouldn't have found its way into this experience one way or the other, but it came with, it was very conveniently packaged in becoming injured. Now we've all watched, or a lot of us have been watching, um, reruns on on tv of the movie um home alone right that's a a holiday classic and it's one of my favorite movies and i want to characterize my inner critic as kevin McAllister's entire family when he spills the milk and when i became injured it was like that uncle screaming at him look what you've done now you little jerk right and then there's that gross brother buzz who's such a jerk to him and pushes him around and even his mom i just do not approve of how she handled that whole thing sticking that small kid in the attic which scared him it wasn't cool man so everybody was coming at poor little kev he was what six eight not very old and um i i feel like my inner child was just like kevin and my inner critic was like a conglomeration, that whole montage of all those mean faces just started screaming at me when I got injured, um, which isn't very kind, right? You would go like, why would you be mean to yourself because you got injured? Well, I had a long history, <laughs> a long history in my childhood of being undermined um, if I had needs in general, like being, if I was sick, I was a hypochondriac. If I wanted, if I'd asked my mom for therapy um, because I was being actively abused in ways that was causing me an 
intense amount of anxiety and I was self-aware enough to know that I wasn't coping well. I asked my mom if I could see a therapist. She was like, you just like to talk about yourself. Um, Stuff like that, you know. Um, I was just always your needs were undermined. And that's really typical of somebody who grows up in an abusive childhood. They're kind of gaslit to believe that. Um, there's nothing wrong with the people abusing them. It's something that's wrong with them. And that transfers into your adulthood where you actually start to seek out similar people to hang out with who will gaslight you and tell you or undermine you in very, very obvious and not obvious ways. Often they'll be subtle about it because often, you know, we've all, we've got this sort of self-awareness to not put up with outright abuse. So people will maybe make fun of you being emotional or having needs or wanting um uh wanting consistency in relationships or you know getting upset when people are inconsistent or they they confuse you you don't know whether you're coming or going with them you know they'll be they'll go hot or cold hot and cold stuff like that where you don't know people's expectations of you that will throw you off and then people will mock you for that so that sort of thing um had you know my toolbox in childhood I had brought along with me into adulthood and I had gravitated towards some people who were abusive and I was really confused for a good deal of my adulthood and so when I became injured um I just kind of reverted back to blaming myself and it was like look what you've done now you little jerk and then I my my inner critic was was even creating really vivid dreams where I was having people tell me, you don't know what you're doing. What are you doing running a marathon? You know, people that I actually known in, in real life who, who were good runners, who had been somewhat undermining of me in my own running endeavors early in my life. They were cropping up right before this marathon and talking to me. So my own inner critic was just desperate, desperate to undermine me before I actually accomplished this thing that I had finally felt worthy to do. And I think that this is a very, very common phenomenon. And I think it's something that we all need to be really aware of, um, that we will self-sabotage if we have not taken care of what ails us, if we don't know what's triggering us, if we don't feel truly worthy of goals. And so for me, when I became injured, it wasn't just a matter of, well, you're somebody who's running like 30 to 40 miles in a week. Um, that, that happens, that happens to the best of us. That happens to elite athletes and, and average athletes alike. It just happens. Bodies are not necessarily designed for that kind of onslaught. And so, yeah, shit happens, but no, for me, it was like, look what you've done now, you little jerk. You brought that upon yourself because you ran that little bit of extra mileage in that long run that you shouldn't have, or you didn't cross train correctly or this or this or that. So I was feeling pretty poorly about myself and I could sense that there was like a downward spiral. I could sense this pulling into the darkness. And I think if I would listen to my last podcast, I would hear that kind of neuroses creeping in. I'm sure I would, if I would listen to it, but, um, no need for that now because I've, I've learned some stuff. Um, but even after, um, I did complete this this marathon, and I must say that um, I've never been a particularly fast runner, and so I was never that preoccupied with setting a time for the marathon, right? So first of all, there was this injury. Would I be able to do the injury at all? I would be letting down all these people who sponsored me, and I'd raised all this money and, and all this, so that neurosis was keeping me... Um, 
feeling miserable and not even allowed to enjoy the prospect of the marathon. And then I was also obsessing over, I'm so injured that I'm limping and I'm wearing a brace and I'm waking up in the middle of the night and in pain and, and you know, painkillers isn't helping it. And I'm just not even comfortable when I'm sitting. Why are people still encouraging me to run this marathon? Do they think I'm faking? They must think I'm faking. Well, at the end of the day, my family and my friends were just really, really aware of how invested I was and how much work I put in. And they were just trying to be encouraging. They did not care. They would love me one way or the other. They would accept if I didn't run it because I, I was injured. And the people who had sponsored me would accept that. But I wouldn't accept myself. I was finding all sorts of ways to undermine myself and make myself miserable because I was still carrying around my toolbox of childhood. And so I have since come up or at least come upon another valuable toolbox to use to instate and uh, to put in place um, in times when of stress, when um, my inner self maybe wants to revert back to the inner child and wants to let the inner critic out and into the driver's seat. And um, I, I like to think of, you know, putting the inner critic, either if we can toss it out of the car and just leave it in the woods in or in the desert to die, that would be fine. That would be perfect. But at least at the beginning, you know, we want to muzzle that thing and you know, put a piece of tape over its mouth like a kidnapped victim and throw it in the trunk of the car, tie it up. And um, so I was able, I must say, I was able with the help of a lot of friends and some meditation on the morning thereof to get on the road and do this marathon, injured and everything. And in addition to that, I'd had I got my period. So I was on the first day of my period, which is if you're a woman listening to this, you know that that's a miserable experience. Um, you're going to have your cramps. You're going to have just all sorts of misery going on in your abdomen, which is also something that happens in the latter stages of a marathon at the best of times for most people. Uh, you're, you know, the, all the blood is diverted away into your limbs. And so you start to get intestinal distress. You, you feel sick. You feel bloated. Sometimes, you know, you'll want to puke or like, there's going to be all sorts of stuff going down. And so it was a double whammy. And so I got through with this pretty significant injury doing a marathon, um, successfully finished it, had a pretty good time apart from the, you know, towards the end, I did want to like, uh, I did mention a few times wanting to uh, uh, amputate my leg because it hurt so much. But so you would think by any measure, the fact that I finished this thing, right? I, and that like with all that going on, I finished it and I should feel thrilled with myself. You would imagine one, one should imagine I would have imagined. I certainly would have said if somebody had to say at the beginning of that year, okay, on October 20th of 2019, you're going to finish your first marathon and you'll do it injured sis. And you'll do it on the first day of your period. You will have overcome all your darkest fears because I used to think like, imagine having, honestly, imagine having your period on the first day. Uh, your first day period on a marathon, what even would that look like? How would that be? What a mess that would be like, how difficult. And I did it. I actually like overcame all physical concerns for that thing. And because I was injured, I had to do it slower. And I have a condition that makes it kind of an issue to um, stay upright if I'm not properly hydrated with enough salt and everything. And, and if I'm out there for longer than I anticipated, it's going to be more of a thing. So I'd had all those anxieties, faced them, dealt with it, done it. Yay. Awesome. Right? Well, there are two photos from that marathon. And I'm going to post them, um, which show pure joy, relief, satisfaction, just 
absolute sense of triumph and gratitude and just all the good things that you would imagine that one would feel. And I will say that those are genuine photos. Those pictures were genuine. I felt those feelings. But I only remembered that I felt them when I looked at the photos a few weeks later. I sort of got a tiny glimpse of that joy. And I was like, yes, I do remember. And I was so happy. But it faded, I would say, within 60 seconds to five minutes after it actually being complete. I was overcome with a sense of disassociation that was quickly replaced with disgust and shame. Now, that's a pity. That is a great pity, I would say. And you might agree that somebody who's run a marathon should feel disgust and shame in themselves. And why should she? Well, I decided that it had to do with my time. Now, it had nothing to do with my time because I didn't have a time goal going into the training. I've never really been preoccupied with time because that's not my strength. My strength is I'm not a sprinter. I'm a long distance runner. I'm not fast twitch. I'm slow twitch. I can run forever. Not necessarily fast. I don't train for speed. I hadn't put any in any effort to run fast. So... I didn't have expectations of running fast, right? I was injured. I also have my period. So, you know, there was no need to think that I should have a time goal. And by anybody's measure, the first marathon is just about completing it. So pride, right? Pride and joy. No. Shame, dismay, despair. Big, big spiral into into it. Frankly, I had a couple of days of feeling straight up suicidal. This was full-on complex PTSD despair. The shame spiral, the, the sad spiral, the worthlessness, all of it. So running a marathon, completing a lifelong goal, acknowledging it to myself, embracing it, training for it, doing it against all odds, and what did we have at the end of it all? Felt way worse than when I started. Way, way worse. Felt utterly useless pathetic, just all the bad things, the bad, those safe self-hate words, they were just running through my mind on a loop. And so this is why I'm saying cautionary tale. If you think you're going to get out of your self-hatred or your self-loathing or your self-sabotage by achieving more things, darling, you won't. You've got to address those things. You've got to learn how to replace the um, the coping mechanisms of your childhood with strong and healthy adult mechanisms. And there are, there's no, don't be ashamed that you feel that way either. Don't be ashamed in yourself because that was a whole nother thing. Like, okay, well, I'm ashamed that I can't be proud. Like what the hell is wrong with me? Okay. So that's a whole nother loop that you can get into. This shame monster is going to do everything it can, everything it can to keep you down. It's, it's a very well um, exercised muscle. And so what I'm going to offer you is some um, tools that I've used in the last few months to try and reprogram my brain. And really, the brain is very, very elastic. The psyche um, it needs some reprogramming because especially, you know, like now I'm in my 40s, it's been a while. It's been a while. I picked up the baton of the undermining that I experienced and the self and the abuse that I experienced in my childhood. I carried it high and proud into my adulthood. I took on the role of whoever was undermining and abusing um, me and I did it to myself. And then when I wasn't doing a good enough job of it, I gravitated towards um, uh, so-called friends um, who could do it for me, who could do a super job of it for me if I ever like, if I ever 
didn't do a good enough job. So, you know, that was splendid. And I'm being very sarcastic and ironic right now. But um, I'm learning now to uh, move away from those relationships, to protect myself uh, from them, um, to create boundaries. And then also, most importantly, to catch myself in this these self-loathing behaviors and these self-critical behaviors and then these undermining behaviors and to replace them. And it's actually, it takes work and it's very deliberate. So when I say your goals won't make you happy, I'm going to amend that. The goal to become a fully actualized person who has their inner child safely in the back seat and their inner critic, one that is a calm, loving and firm parent who balances love with expectation, that's a great goal to have. To have a horrible critic that look like, looks like any member of the McAllister family or whatever image in your mind that is ugly and undermining of somebody who's just trying their bloody best or who's just made a mistake, for goodness sake. We all make mistakes, right? Um, or anybody who is unkind or undermining, however subtle it might be, you know it in your soul. You know it in your soul. If somebody is not good for you, if they make you feel bad about yourself, you know what, and you don't have to, you don't have to take that apart. You don't have to explain it to them or to you. You don't have to, you just have to get away from it and, and deal with it until you can feel firm and safe with yourself. You just have to protect your inner self from these influences. And often they're coming from inside of you. So today I'm going to use um, the toolkit. It's toolkit number three in a book called Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving by Pete Walker. This is a book that um, friends and family members, my brother, my beloved brother, Seth, who is so wise, um, introduced it to me. I introduced it to friends. Friends helped me in turn with it. Um, it's such a useful book. If you have any childhood trauma, if you don't, um, great. But if you can help somebody else out with it, great. If you have an inner critic that is maybe that little bit too loud, listen to these tools that he offers. They're from, um, if I have the, the paperback book, on the paperback book, it's in self-help help tools on page 317, I'm going to be referencing those. They're the suggested internal responses to common critic attacks. Um, so what happened to me um, after, the, after the marathon was that my critic just got going. Before the marathon, um, there was the, you should not have gotten injured, you suck because of it, and who are you to think that you can do this? Afterwards, it was like, look at your time. You didn't even, you, you did it in five hours and six, I think it was five or six minutes. What the hell? Now, why would that arbitrary number bother me? Well, I'll tell you, it's kind of an amusing story. Um, Katie Holmes, the, you know, the actor Katie Holmes? Back in the day, she ran the New York City Marathon. Why you should or I should remember that um, is anybody's guess. But I'll tell you why I did. Somebody who's a good runner, who's in my past, who was kind of an undermining figure, particularly of my running, um, had made fun of Katie Holmes when she ran her first marathon, which was the New York City Marathon, and she ran it in five hours and some minutes. I don't know what they were. And I quietly listened into this, and I had thought, wow, Katie Holmes, you little rock star, you ran a marathon, well done, like most of the rest of the world. 
But this person was a runner and for some reason thought it was appropriate to make fun of Katie Holmes. And I internalized that because that person echoed uh, a lot of the stuff I'd been brought up with. And I was like, okay, this good runner who I've always tried to prove myself to and I can never get approval of regarding my running says that this is a crappy time. Now, I did not remember that until after I ran the marathon injured on the day of my first period and I ran it in, it happened to be five hours and six or five minutes. Um, I did not remember that until my mind went back to that. And I actually even looked up the story of Katie Holmes running a marathon and saw what her time was. And I actually think I might have run it faster than her. I'm pretty confident I did actually. And um, I just laughed at myself like, why should this matter? How bizarre. How bizarre. And um, it turns out, yeah, because my inner critic was just like like working over time. Yeah. <laughs> You got in the five hour. One should never see a five in front of their number. And I'm like, one should, you know, never worry about numbers on one's first marathon. I've heard way more people say that than anything about any of the numbers. Anyway, so that was my perfectionist thing. The other thing I discovered, uh, the shame spiral was um, revealed to me when I um, was talking to a friend of mine who actually happens to be a psychologist and has been really helpful to me just as a friend. Um, in understanding that I had PTSD and it sort of motivated me to get help for that. But she is a really good runner and she's run several marathons, including Boston Marathon. And she said, oh, Kirsty, I'm so sorry that you can't feel pride and joy. That's a, that's a pretty um, that's a pretty typical um, problem for people with PTSD is finding pride and joy in their accomplishments. Um, but, you know, I have to tell you that my proudest marathon was not Boston, which she happened to run brilliantly, by the way, um, unusually well, but um, the, a Toledo marathon, which I ran because I was injured. And it was just willpower that saw me through. And I was so proud that I had that in me. And I was like, wow, you know, that must feel really nice to be able to be proud of yourself. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, I really wish you could. And then I said to her, I just blurted out, I just feel so much shame that I was injured. I feel ashamed of being injured. And she looked just taken aback. And she was like, why would you? And I was like, I know, right? Weird. Um, consciously, that seems like a really weird thing to feel, shame at being injured. And then I realized that, you know, I'd been, I carried shame with the fact that I'd been abused, which was being hurt, right? I carried shame that I brought that upon myself my whole life. And like I said before, I'd been undermined in lots of ways when I, when I needed help or when I sort of, um, you know, expressed needs, I'd been made to feel ashamed about this, but this was deeper and it was darker and it was way painful because I felt like if I'd, if I'd done something else, maybe if I'd stopped the abuse, so I'd stopped the abuse before it started, I'd, I carried that around my whole childhood. Maybe if I told right from the jump before it got serious, maybe if I'd done something to change it, then my whole family wouldn't be under this cloud. Um, and when I eventually did break the story that it caused such chaos and pain within my family, I was the one who had brought it upon me. And my mother had reinforced that sort of um, notion in lots of both very uh, uh, obvious ways when I told her and she said, did you seduce him? But also she had sort of made this big deal of me being somebody who was irresistible to to men over the course of my childhood and it wasn't in a complimentary way I never sensed it that way it was always just like men can just not help themselves and I think it was because she was on some level aware of what had happened to me and it made it 
it like more sort of out of her hands and out of the hands of the man she had chosen to stay married to if it was just this this thing, this thing that I brought. I was, I was some kind of weird siren that just had this power. And it was, I mean, that's really gross and really weird thing to say to your child. But, um, you know, I, I, wherever it came from, it came from a place of pain and fear for her. But um, I know that I unconsciously carried this around with me, that I deserved this pain and I felt ashamed of it. And I felt shame. I felt shame that... I had been uncomfortable and I'd been in pain having to run and I'd been injured. And so um, so while the the critic was telling me, well, you got a lousy time, which had never mattered to me before, had never mattered. Yes, I'd had some sort of goal time when people had, you know, pressed me for it that I, I'd wanted to run it. And I thought I could easily enough run it in 4.30 because of my half marathon time during training. I wasn't particularly fixated about it. You know, it wasn't a big deal for me. But my critic pounced on that. And then the shame also came and wrapped around it. And it became this just this really, truly, um, having accomplished the goal of running a marathon, I I was in the most dangerous place that I had been in a long, long time psychologically. So that's what I'm trying to say. So the work that the goal that maybe you should set this this year, if I would suggest any goal, if you're looking for peace and comfort and and self-love and self-worth is not external. It's not external. It's not going to come in, a, in, in achieving a, a degree or getting a divine advanced degree or getting um married or having a kid or another kid it's not going to come in the form of running a marathon or doing an ironman or leveling up in a martial art it's not going to come in uh, making a million dollars or even moving out of your parents basement and getting your first job it's not going to come in any of those things because your inner critic is going to find a way to undermine you if you've not sorted this out if you've not found other ways if you don't know how to take it and rewire those the, those words and those messages in your mind to be something productive and helpful and enforcing and so here they are um again it's page 317 in that book uh in the toolbox so here are some of the forms of attacks that will come, and they'll come in the form of number one, perfectionism. Um, and he says, the author says that his perfectionism arose in his attempt to gain um, safety and support in a family that did not feel safe, in a family which felt dangerous to him. And many of us um, came up in families like that in one way or the other. Either they were emotionally unsafe or they were physically unsafe or whatever. There was some sense of um, unsafety which required a sense of perfectionism. And um, so the way he um, talks to himself when perfectionism attacks came up um, was, I do not have to be perfect to be safe or loved in the presence. Perfectionism is a self persecutory myth. I'm letting go of relationships that require perfectionism and I have a right to make mistakes. Mistakes do not make me a mistake. Every mistake or mishap is an opportunity to practice loving myself in the places that I've never been loved before. So every time something new, you screw up perhaps in a new way, you're like, great, this is an opportunity for me to accept myself in a whole new way. This is another new and exciting opportunity for me to love myself. And I think that's a really wonderful thing to learn to do.
Um, number two is in perfectionism attacks is an all or none or black and white thinking. And when that happens, he says, I reject extreme or overgeneralized descriptions, judgments, or criticisms. Here's my dog sighing. He does not like those either. Um, statements that describe me as always or never, this or that, are typically grossly inaccurate. So if you find yourself going, I always do this, I always do that, be like, uh, no, I always fail myself. Well, do you really? Do you always fail yourself? Have you failed to get up out of bed? Have you failed to, you know, stay alive this long? You know, those, 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 those like sweeping over generalized statements are often nonsense and, and they need to stop. Number three, um, self-hate, self-disgust, and toxic shame. So that's what I was really embroiled with post-marathon. And he says, I commit to myself. I'm on my side. I am a good enough person. I refuse to trash myself. And so when you're like, oh, you know, a lot of us, a lot of us use this self-deprecation to gain acceptance or to protect ourselves from others. Um, so we trash on ourselves before others get the chance to. Stop doing that. Stop doing it. It's not necessary and it actually invites others to do it. And you don't protect yourself because if you are, and this is me talking now, if you don't protect yourself against other people's attacks, um, against your own attacks, why on earth should people believe that they should not talk to you poorly? If you're talking to about yourself or to yourself poorly, you're not going to protect yourself from people who are unkind. They're going to be like, well, that person clearly feels insecure and bad about themselves. Great. Perfect target, especially for narcissists who do it in a really subtle way. Don't do it. Um, I turn shame back into blame and disgust and externalize it to anyone who shames my normal feelings and foibles. And that was the thing. My family um, dynamic was such of, you know, if I had a normal emotion or if I expressed a need or a normal emotion, I was a hypochondriac or I was too much or I was too that. I remember being very, very, very sick in my early pregnancy and the whole family turning against me when I couldn't keep up with the grueling pace of... Um, their vacation plans in South African heat. And I come from Idaho and I was struggling terribly. And I think back on how much shame I internalized and how um, lonely and, and isolated and, and, and shameful I felt. And I look back now and I'm just like, are you kidding? These people were ridiculous. You know, I would never do that to somebody who was pregnant. I know how hard it is. Um, so that that went all the way through into my adulthood and, and continues still to this day. Like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me for feeling this way? I remember weeping terribly, like just loudly and, and feeling needed. Like, I, I got to get a grip on myself when my friend died recently. Um and my and apologizing to my family and saying I'm so sorry, like I'm so sorry, I'll get a handle on myself, and, and because it was just before Christmas, and them looking at me quizzically, like what's wrong, and then me realizing, what type of example am I setting to my children when I say I'm sorry, I won't ruin Christmas over this, that I'm weeping having a natural response to my friend dying, what example am I setting for my children when they have natural emotions? We are allowed to feel sad at inconvenient times for others. It's okay, you know? Um, so 
I especially, he says, I especially refuse to attack myself for how hard it is to completely eliminate the self-hate habit. That is going to be hard. You're not going to get over it in one day or even one year. You're not going to get over it immediately. And you shouldn't hate yourself for not being able to get over self-hatred because that is, you know, clearly ridiculous, right? It's a ridiculous expectation to have. Uh, We wouldn't want our children to feel that way. And if you're ever in doubt, feel about how you would want your own beloved child to feel. Okay, number four, micromanagement, worrying, obsessing, looping, and over-futurizing. I'm so guilty of doing all of these things, shall I say? Not guilty, but I hurt myself in this way. Um, So these are some of the things he says. I will not repetitively examine details over and over. I'm not going to endlessly second guess myself. I cannot change the past. I will forgive all of my past mistakes, all of them, because they're in the past. I cannot make the future perfectly safe. I will stop hunting for what could go wrong. I will not try to control the uncontrollable, which, guys, is mostly everything. We have so much less control over our lives than we understand all we have over is what we notice and what we and being in this moment so um really you know we don't always have control over what we notice sometimes we're very much in a state of hyper arousal and we notice way more than we would like to but we cannot micromanage everything and everybody into being safe we just can't do it i work in a way that is good enough And I accept the existential fact that my efforts sometimes bring desired results and sometimes they do not. Okay, number five, unfair or devaluing comparisons. So the fact that I went to the Katie Katie Holmes marathon might seem amusing to you and is somewhat amusing to me, but I was actually just trying to find some sense to why this five-hour thing made any impact on me. And then I was like, well, I ran a faster than Katie Holmes. So, phew, you know, it's not altogether a bad thing. Like ridiculous, ridiculous, but something we all do in one way or another all day long, right? Um, if you show me somebody who never compares anything about themselves to anyone else, well, I will be meeting somebody I've never met before because everybody I know freely admits to doing this. Um, So don't compare yourself or devalue yourself to others or to your most perfect moments, right? Don't keep trying to get back to your high school weight. You're not in high school anymore Um, or whatever it is. So he says, I refuse to compare myself unfavorably to others. I will not compare my insides to their outsides. I will not judge myself for not being at peak performance all the time. In a society that pressures us into acting happy all the time, I will not get down on myself for feeling bad, right? So many people are embarrassed by the fact that they don't seem up all the time. And there's this toxic message on social media that is like, what is it? Uh, only bad, only, good vibes only. Nonsense. Stop it. That's ridiculous. The human experience is not a good vibe only. It, a human experience is a thousand different feelings every day. And there is nothing wrong with feeling the full extent of the human experience. And if you are somebody who feels a lot of feelings and a lot of things, that's great. Good for you, right? There is a place for big feelers in this world. And for somebody who feels, um, you know, who feels very, very happy and very, very sad and very, very shocked and very, very, you know, all the things, 
you're fine. That's fine. You don't have to have good vibes all the time. That's an absolute nonsense. And it's, it's just such a shallow way to be. So nonsense, stop it. Um, We don't need to get down on ourselves for feeling bad, particularly if we are, we are dealing with things like this that have been wired into us since our youth. That's a hard job. And we are going to be feeling bad, probably more often than others as we work through this. And that's also okay. Then there's guilt. Feeling guilt does not mean I'm guilty. I refuse to make my decisions and choices out of guilt. Sometimes I need to feel the guilt and do it anyway. In the inevitable instance, when I inadvertently hurt someone, I will apologize and I will make amends and then I will let go of my guilt. I will not apologize over and over and over. I'm no longer a victim. I will not accept unfair blame. Guilt is sometimes just camouflaged fear, right? And acting guilty sometimes protects us and did in our childhood. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That would appease whoever it was that was hurting us. Um, And sometimes you can see yourself doing that out of fear. You don't want to lose a relationship with somebody who's actually toxic. So you say, I'm sorry. What it is, is that you're not actually sorry. You know you did nothing wrong. What you are is afraid. And you might want to say, I'm afraid, but I'm not guilty and I'm not actually in danger. If you're afraid of losing a relationship and that person's making you feel afraid of losing the relationship, the relationship is probably not healthy. And so while you may feel fear, that's okay. You don't have to say things or sell yourself out. You don't have to say sorry when you don't mean it or when you know you did nothing wrong. All right, number seven is shoulding. And instead of saying I should, I will substitute the words I want to. I only follow this imperative if it feels like I want to or unless I am under legal, ethical or moral obligation. So I want to do this, not I should do this. I'm doing this because it's something I should do. I did not run that marathon because it was something I felt I should do. And that's why it was sad that I could not feel um, a sense of accomplishment because I was actually running it for the right reasons when I was doing it, which is why I was enjoying it so much, which is why it was such a fulfilling and wonderful experience when I was training for it. And, and it's actually while I was doing it. It was a wonderful experience. And I and I want to keep going back to how great the actual race itself was. I mean, and I'm grateful that my mind and the help that my friends gave me and my family and support gave me allowed me to experience that. I'm really grateful for that. And I'm grateful that I have the two photos that show that I did actually experience that moment of joy and, and, and satisfaction. Okay, back to self-help tools. Number eight, overproductivity, workaholism or busyholism. I am a human being, not a human doing. I will not choose to be perpetually productive. I am more productive in the long run when I balance work with play and relaxation. I will not try to perform at 100% at all times. I subscribe to the normalcy of vacillating along with a continuum of efficiency. I hear a lot of people who I suspect are working through demons saying really harsh things like no days off. I don't give myself any days off, especially if they're training physically. I think that's really harmful. I know, I know that it's very harmful for the body and will not have good results ultimately. But I think it's a very, this unrelenting, this kind of like culture of toughness and like being unkind to your physical and mental self in the name of toughness and accomplishment is toxic, toxic, toxic. Do not subscribe to it. It is not healthy. It does not come from a healthy place. It comes from a place of trauma. Um, We all know people who have achieved a great deal and we admire them for that and it's good and great and whatever, but they are fighting a demon. 
they are also fighting against their own demons. And being at peace with yourself and being at peace with rest is healthy and normal and will ultimately lead to wonderful things, including good relationships, which is really what it all comes down to. Abusing your body um, to accomplish external goals will have consequences in the long run. And they are not what you want to deal with because nobody can keep abusing their body forever. And then you'll have to sit in the quietness of your mind. And eventually you're going to have to take care of that. So do not subscribe. Please don't subscribe to those toxic messages. We see them a lot on social media and they are dangerous. And then finally, number nine, harsh judgments of self and others name calling. I will not let the bullies and critics of my early life win by joining and agreeing with them. I refuse to attack myself or abuse others. I will not displace the criticism and blame that rightfully belongs to my original critics onto myself or the current people in my lives. I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendly, friendless, and the more unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself. That's a quote by Jane Eyre. And I think that's a really good one because you know what? A lot of people who have abandonment issues in their childhood are terrified to be alone. If they felt a sense of abandonment from others, um, particularly a caregiver, or they did not connect to that caregiver because that caregiver was abusive or uh, just emotionally completely unavailable or whatever, they are scared to be alone and their worst fear is being friendless. And so they might join in um, bullying of themselves or others to make sure that they're never alone. And it would be, wouldn't it be incredibly liberating to know that if you don't have a single friend or person in the world standing with you, you stand with you. You are your own best friend. You stand by yourself. You have your own back. And that is the goal, my friends. That is the goal to to strive to accomplish this year. To me, that's the ultimate goal, to become your own best friend, to know you have your back, to be at peace with the, the, the voices in your own mind, to banish that critic far away and say, you have no place in my life anymore. Go away. And neither do your friends in person who are undermining you in subtle ways. All of it, go, go, be gone. I love myself. I accept myself as I am now. And when I accomplish things, external accomplishments, I do so because I know I'm worthy of them and I enjoy the process and I am completely unattached to the outcome. I don't need a medal around my neck. I don't need a title. I don't need to be the best at what I do to feel any more joy and acceptance in myself than I do now. But all those things are worthy and fun and great and, and, and part of making a rich and exciting life. And so you go for them if that's what you want to do. You don't do things because you think that they will make you more popular or more acceptable to yourself or to others. You do things because you want to experience them and you want to have those wonderful experiences like the experience that I had when I reached out in the marathon um, to a woman who was sobbing, crying. She was holding, um, there's, a, a, there's something called the angel mile in um, the marathon and um, that I ran to raise money for um, Nationwide Children's Hospital. And a lot of people support that marathon and stand out there and cheer us on. And it's deeply touching and moving. And some of the bravest people I think out there are um, not only patients who do come out there if they're well enough to be patient champions, but um, there are people who hold up pictures and memorials of their children who lost the fight. Um, to childhood cancer or other diseases and um, remind us all 
what we're doing this for. And there was a woman out there. I don't think necessarily it was her child. It looked like it might have been her grandchild. She was just standing next to a son or a daughter who had a photo of that kid, and she was sobbing. And I reached out to her, and it was kind of far um, in Samaritan. I was, I'm not prone to crying, but you, it comes closer. The tears come closer uh, to the surface when you're sort of tired and emotional like that. And I, um, I think I cried for that whole mile. It was just really, really moving. And it really put me in a real strong state of empathy. And I reached out to that particular woman sort of through the crowd. And we just grasped hands for a moment. And there was just this electricity of pure connection, of empathy and compassion for each other and thanks and love for each other. And it just felt like this, it felt, I just felt connected with the whole world in that moment. And that is a moment that I really, really will treasure from that marathon. And I will treasure looking up at the um, the window of the children's hospital where they had made a sign saying, thank you. And I will treasure my husband being so thrilled for me at the end of that, just, just so delighted um, in my accomplishment. You know, he didn't give a crap about what time and the fact that he'd had to hang out there for that length of time. Um, just the fact that he had my back and he was there for me and the friends that uh, supported me beautifully along the way and, and, and cheered me on and my, ch- my children who were there, um, my son and his girlfriend were there. There's just so many beautiful highlights and, and that process, that that's what's important. You know, that's why we do things, to have these these gorgeous, this gorgeous range of emotions. Um, that's why we, we get an education and that's why we strive to do the best we can at our career because it's fulfilling and and we help other people through it. It's not the end all, right? The accomplishment, having the accomplishment under our belt should never be what the goal is. The goal is the peace. The goal is the acceptance and the acceptance does not come from accomplishments. The acceptance is who we are right now and it drives the accomplishments. It drives the what you know what we're going to end up doing and the excellence in our life. Don't put the the cart before the horse, friends. Um, So in setting your goals this year, may I suggest that you make peace with yourself? And I'm going to um, link to this book because it's helping a lot of people I know to make peace with themselves and to help their loved ones to make peace with themselves and to improve their relationships. And um, he has some really just excellent tools, self-help tools that you can use to rewire this very elastic brain that we have. Um, takes a lot of work, takes a lot of consistency, takes time, but is so flippin' worth it. So that when you do accomplish wonderful things, and you will be motivated to, the more energy that you free up um, from hating on yourself and criticizing yourself and unmindling yourself, you're going to c- accomplish great things. You will also be able to enjoy them. And, um, yeah, so I'm going to end now so that I can sit in contemplation and bask in, um, my memories of that marathon now that I've brought them up again. And, um, and if you have any questions or comments or uh, suggestions for this season, please let me know. I have another episode coming at you very soon. Um, I, I record an episode with my brother, Seth Randall, who is amazing. He is a fount of wisdom and knowledge and kindness and incredible tips. Um, for um, bound, uh, The topic of that one is forgiveness with boundaries and how to balance those two things. Um, which is is very hard for a lot of people to kind of um, uh, 
balance um, in their minds. So I think it's fascinating. I really enjoyed recording it with him. So that's the next one we've got coming up and many more wonderful things this season. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please share. Please like uh, this podcast. Rate it. Share it with your friends. Um, that's how we grow. And I would like to grow and to be able to help as many people as possible. Um, and Happy New Year. And um, you're wonderful. You're absolutely wonderful. Perfect. Just as you are. Uh, be kind to yourselves. Um, if you want to contact me, you can contact me through my Facebook Messenger. I'm just Kirsty Sayer on Facebook. Message me. Um, or you can contact me through Instagram. I'm Momedy Kirsty over there, like comedy, but Momedy. Or um, contact me through the One Inch Pascari website. There are myriad ways to contact me over there. Thanks again for tuning in. I will talk to you very soon. And you are loved and worthy of every good thing. So go out and get it. Bye-bye.